What a wonderful morning. It has been it has been excellent already to be here worshiping God together with you today. And I'm excited to share with you from God's Word. Before we go to the sermon, I just want to also remind you, uh, for those of you who uh, weren't aware of, of what happened uh, with Brittany Greening this past week, she had an emergency appendectomy uh, on, I believe it was early Thursday morning, and, uh, and also there's been some other things discovered since then. They discovered a cyst that is going to need to be removed as well. So uh, if you just want to remember to continue to lift them up in your prayers uh, in the, the coming days and weeks, and uh, also lift up yeah, both, both Brittany and Tim as well as he's uh, supporting her, uh, and that's why they're, they're not here this morning. Would you now bow with me and let's pray together. Father God, you are just so good. You are such an amazing God. You are wonderful in all that you do. The way that you can bring good out of something bad is incredible. Only you can do the things that we've seen you do in history. Even as we think of Joseph's brothers, we think of how you used one of the most terrible things to betray a brother, and yet out of it, God, you brought about a wonderful way of saving that entire family, and you had a plan for the future and for their good. And so, Lord, even as we think of what's happened this past week with Brittany and unexpected health complications, even there we see your hand. For if it hadn't been for the appendectomy, they may not have discovered the cyst. And so we even see your hand in that, Lord, and your guidance. And so we just pray for your hand of healing upon Brittany. Uh, Lift her up, encourage her even now, be with Tim as well, Lord, as he supports her, and just build them up through this. We know that your plans are for their good, and so we agree with those, Lord. And now, Lord, for us gathered here today, we again want to embrace that your plans, O God, are for our good. Your word is for our healing, and that, Lord, even where there is conviction And a hard word needs to be spoken. Even that, Lord, is for our good, for we know that you are a father who delights in his children, and as a father must correct his children, so you correct us. And so, Father, we pray that as we hear your word, that we would remember that you are a good father who loves us. And so give us open spirits and hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord Jesus, may we meet with you and see you in a real and intimate way today. And may we leave here encouraged to walk with you. So bless your words. Speak through me, I pray. May the words be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie City Slickers, some of you may have seen it. It was a bit of a cult classic from a previous generation. Of course, the lead actor of the movie City Slickers is Billy Crystal. And the premise of the movie goes that him and a group of his executive city friends decide that they're fed up with the rat race of city life. They're fed up with bosses and deadlines and schedules and sitting behind a desk the best hours of their lives. And so they decide that they're going to leave the rat race behind and they're going to go on an adventure. Now, the character Mitch, which is played by Billy Crystal, he has problems at work. He has problems in his marriage. But rooted beneath all of those things is a general dissatisfaction with his life. He's not happy with where his life has gone, and he's having what most would call today a midlife crisis. He's at a point where something's got to change. Now, 
the adventure that they head out on turns out to be a cattle drive in the wild, wild west. The guide for the adventure is an old cowhand named Curly. They go on this crazy adventure, many funny and dangerous things happen along the way, and after this has all transpired, near the end of the movie, they're riding their horses along the trail, the classic western scene, the sun's beginning to set, and the old cowhand Curly asks Mitch this question. Do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch replies, no, what? Curly holds up one finger and says, this. Your finger? Mitch asks. Curly continues, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that and the rest don't mean squat. That's great, Mitch replies, but what's this one thing? To which Curly responds with a smile, that's what you've got to figure out. Now this morning, that's what I want to speak to you about. I want to speak to you about the one thing. And once you figure out that one thing, the rest don't mean squat. Now, I suspect that the rest of you here today, pardon me, not the rest of you, but most of you here today can identify with Billy Crystal's character Mitch in some way or another. Perhaps you too are kind of at a stage in your life where you're just kind of in the middle of this rat race, doing the same things over and over again. Perhaps like him, you have some problems in your family, maybe in your marriage, maybe in ever-increasing stress in your work. Perhaps you have a general dissatisfaction with where your life has gone and where it's taking you. On top of all of that, perhaps it seems that everywhere you turn, another obligation is being placed on your already heaping plate of responsibilities. Another committee to sit on. Another ministry position that needs volunteers. Another meeting to attend. Another school fundraiser. Another. 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 So let me just ask you this quick uh, self-diagnosis. I'm going to ask you a series of questions here, and I want you just to reply to yourself. You don't have to say this out loud, but just I want you to diagnose where your own life is at right now. I'm just going to ask you a few quick questions. Don't lie to yourself. Be honest. Which of these phrases apply to you? First one, overscheduled with activity. Does that apply to you? Easily distracted. Burdened by responsibilities, spiritually stagnant, stuck, or depleted. Life feels like it's moving fast, but I feel like I'm going nowhere. Do any of these apply to you in some way, shape, or form? Be honest with yourself. These are things that happen to most of us at some point in life. Thankfully, the Bible reveals for us the one thing that is the antidote to all of these issues and more. I want you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 10. And there we're going to read the story again that we read a little bit earlier. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Let's begin reading. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. 
You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this story standing alone is an amazing snapshot that has many lessons to teach us. But it becomes even more rich when we consider the setting and the background. Let me just paint the picture for you. Jesus' ministry at this time is absolutely booming. Everywhere he goes, more people are flocking to hear him teach, to hear him preach, and most, mostly to see him perform miracles. And so everywhere he goes, there are demands made of him, and more and more are being placed all the time. More healings, more miracles, more teaching, more testing, more of everything. And so every once in a while, Jesus would call a timeout. He'd say, you know what? My, my day is done. My ministry for this day is over, and I'm calling a timeout. I'm going to take a break. And so what he would do often, we read, is that he would retreat to the village of Bethany to stay at the, as the guest of his close friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this is the setting that we see for this story. Now, of course... The, the story, the account that we're most familiar with these characters is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This happens after this story. We're not sure how much later on, but it happens after this incident occurred. Now, from the various accounts in the Gospels, we see that this friendship and, and this relationship that Jesus had with, with these siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, was a very intimate friendship. It was one of, of the, the people that Jesus allowed into his inner circle. These were the people that, that were more than just followers. These were friends. These were people that Jesus could bear his soul to. Go there and there was no expectations made of him. He could just go and put his feet up and relax and be, be in fellowship with friends, be refreshed and rejuvenated. And so we see that that's exactly why Jesus would go to Bethany to stay at their place, a place for fellowship, laughter, and encouragement, a place where when he would leave, he'd be ready to face the crowds once more. It was the sort of friendship that had a genuine open-door policy, where I'm sure they said to Jesus many times, you can come by any time. Any time you need a place to stay, this is your place. And so we see Jesus taking advantage of their hospitality. And so it's easy to now picture how this confrontation develops in this setting. Jesus and his 12 disciples have arrived late one day with little or perhaps no advance warning. After the initial buzz of excitement at Jesus' arrival, you know, Jesus is here. This is great. We never know when he's coming, but he's here. We know we're going to have a good time. But after the initial excitement wears off, Martha suddenly has it dawn on her. They're hungry. They need to eat. I've got to feed them. Uh-oh. And she's going through a quick mental inventory of what she's got in the house. How much food do I have? What do I need to run down to the market to get? Oh, we can't just feed them leftovers. It's only the best. This is Jesus we're talking about. And she's racing through her mind all of the things that need to happen. And so as Martha is setting to it, hurrying about, Mary, on the other hand, is doing the exact opposite. They've welcomed Jesus into the house. His disciples are making themselves comfortable. Jesus is settling in. He's talking, telling wonderful stories about what's happened the past week. And Mary's just settling in at his feet. Martha is going a million miles an hour, this way, that way, like a chicken with her head chopped off. She's trying to get everything prepared. And Mary's just sitting there. 
And Martha goes by and she sees Mary sitting at the floor at Jesus' feet and she can't believe it. Doesn't she know how much work (laughs) needs to happen for this meal? Doesn't she know how hungry these guys are? Doesn't she know how badly she could use her help? She needed people to run down to the market to get more food and more of this and more of that. And Mary's just sitting there. And the longer she sat, the more irritated Martha becomes. We can just see this. We can just sense this, can't we? And it wasn't as though Martha didn't want to be sitting at Jesus' feet either. She would have loved to be able to just sit there like Mary and listen to all the wonderful stories that Jesus was telling, all the wonderful miracles he'd performed that past week. But somebody had to do the work. And so Martha is seething. She's beginning to slow boil on the inside. And we can just imagine that as this is happening, certain less than pious thoughts are beginning to race through her mind. You know, thoughts like, Typical Mary, sitting around talking when there's work to be done. Always a lazy sister. I'm the one doing all the cooking and cleaning, and Mary's just sitting around gabbing. You know, you can just imagine these sort of thoughts going through her head. Can't Jesus see how hard I'm working for him? Shouldn't he be sending Mary to help me? Yeah, that's what Jesus should be doing. I suspect that as these thoughts are beginning to come to a real crescendo within her, the the pots and pans are starting to bang a little bit louder. The cupboard doors are slamming. And and she's probably given Mary the stink eye more than once. Get my attention. Get in the kitchen, woman. None of it works. None of it works. It's as though Martha is invisible. It's as though all of her labor is going unnoticed. Everyone's just listening to Jesus, and Mary's just sitting there. And finally, Martha snaps. She's come to the tipping point. The the pot's boiling over, and she marches right into the room. And we can just imagine the scene. She's marching in, flowering her hair, doing her apron, wooden stir stick in one hand, meat cleaver in the other. Okay, not the meat cleaver. Not the meat cleaver. But she's frazzled. She's frazzled, and she comes in, and she blurts out these words that are some of the most challenging words that anyone ever said to Jesus in his entire life. And it gives us a snapshot of how close this friendship is, that she had the freedom to say to him what she's about to say. She stands there, and she blurts out, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. That's a challenge, my friends. That is a challenge. That is coming right into Jesus' face and telling him what to do. That is incredible. But before we get too hard on old Martha, let's consider for a moment. Have I ever ever had one of those moments? Have I ever had one of those boiling moments where things came out of my mouth and, and you just wish instantly that you could take them back. You just blurted them out, and now they're out there, and there's nothing you can do about it. You've got to deal with the consequences. Probably most of us can remember having a time like that. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're maybe visiting with a group of friends in a social setting, and suddenly out of nowhere someone just blurts something out, and instantly it's awkward? <laughs> you ever had one of those? Well, that's exactly what's happened here. The conversation falls silent. 
Mary's face must have flushed with embarrassment and the sting of this rebuke. And suddenly, every other guy in the room wishes he were somewhere else. They're looking, you know, where can I get out of here? But to top all of this off, though Martha's rebuke is towards Mary, her challenge is directed straight at Jesus himself. And she asks this question, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care, Lord? Now, before we get too critical of Martha, have you ever asked that same question? Lord, don't you care? Don't you care about what I'm doing here? Don't you care about how hard I'm working for you? Don't you care how on the inside I'm, I'm dry and weary and burning out and I'm, I'm, a, I'm just about ready to quit? I'm so exhausted. Don't you care, Lord? Don't you care? Does Jesus care, my friends? Does he care about you? Does the Son of God who willingly left heaven's throne care? Does the one who wept outside their brother Lazarus' tomb just a short time later, does he care? Does the friend of sinners who touched the lepers and healed the blind care? Does the man who in a few months' time would bleed and die on a cross for the sins of the world, does he care? More than you or I will ever know. He cares with a depth that we will never experience the fullness of, but all we can do is dive into it. Oh, my friends, the Lord cares. He cares more than we will ever imagine. He loves us more deeply. He cares for us more meticulously. He watches over every single aspect of our lives more closely than we can ever imagine. And yet, the trials and the worries and the chores, the mundane, everyday aspects of our life crowd in. They crowd in and they crowd in and they make us so easily forget. And finally, in frustration, we wonder, we blurt out, Lord, don't you care? Let's look at how Jesus replies to Martha. Verses 41 to 42. Jesus could have replied any number of ways to this outright challenge to his authority, to his place. And look at what he says to her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What a wonderful and gracious reply. Jesus could have rightly rebuked her sharply. But instead, he just says her name twice. Martha, Martha. I love it when Jesus says things twice. Martha, Martha. The effect being extra emphasis. It's as though he's saying in those two, two spoken times of her name, saying her name twice, it's as though he's saying, calm down. You're amongst friends. Take a deep breath. Relax. You are loved. This isn't the end of the world. And he says it all in just that one greeting, Martha, Martha. And he then points out to her something very important. He points out that her anxiety was not just about supper that day. He points out that she is anxious about many things. 
You see, Martha was worried about supper, but Jesus pointed out an underlying systemic issue in her life. She was so worried and distracted about the many things that she had never learned the one thing, the most important thing, the thing that makes the Christian life so good. And what is that one thing? It's what Mary was doing, sitting and learning at Jesus' feet. The one thing, that's what she'd missed in all of her busyness. You see, Martha was so concerned with doing things for Jesus that she viewed spending time with Jesus as a luxury rather than as a necessity. Mary, on the other hand, she got it. She understood that taking the time to sit at Jesus' feet was of first importance, not second. She didn't place it in the category of, I'll do it when I find some free time or after I've knocked a few more things off the chore list. And of her decision to spend time first at Jesus' feet, he says of her, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I will not send her to the kitchen to help you. She has chosen the thing that is of first importance, time with me. You see, Jesus is teaching something that I believe is of absolute essential importance for us to understand today. Relationship must come before service. Relationship with Christ must come before serving Christ. It is of first importance, not second. Service does not come first and relationship second. It is always relationship first and service second. Do we get that? Do we understand that? Jesus is making this plain as day. Now, to put it into context, to make sure we're not diminishing service, did Jesus want to eat that night? Of course he did. The disciples were hungry. They'd walked a long ways that day. He and his disciples wanted good food. But you know what? They hadn't come there for the food. Jesus had come for the friendship. If Jesus had wanted to be wined and dined, he, he could have made steak and lobster. Remember, his first miracle was making the best wine. He had just come from feeding 5,000 people on a hillside. He could have personally arranged for all the caviar in the world that he wanted. But that's not what he was there for. It wasn't about the food. It was about the relationship. In fact, God's entire plan for the world has always been about one thing. Relationship. That's it. That's what this is all about. And out of that relationship can come meaningful service. Not apart from the Lord, but with the Lord. Jesus made this clear in his teaching on the vine and the branches in John 15. There he said, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Martha was so caught up in the many things of life that she had missed the one thing, and she was withering as a result. On the inside, she was dry and brittle. Mary, on the other hand, was focused on the one thing, spending time in relationship with Jesus, and her life was flourishing as a result. And just a couple of chapters later, uh, in John, we find the, the great story of how Jesus is once again eating at, at their table, and they're there, and, and we see Martha once again is serving, and Mary comes in, and she does this extravagant thing for the Lord. She comes, and she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume, and she anoints Jesus' feet, and as she's weeping, 
She's weeping and she's drying his feet with her hair. Again, we see this extravagant act of service that comes out of intimacy. And Martha's serving once again and thinking, Mary, what are you doing? And yet it was out of this relationship that Mary's intimacy came. And so we see the one thing, spending time in relationship with Jesus, is what will make our lives flourish and our service rewarding and meaningful. So let me stop and ask the most important question in the world. Are you a Mary or a Martha? I asked you some self-diagnosis questions earlier on, and you might want to reflect back on those, but this one gets to the heart of it. Who do you identify with more, Mary or Martha? Are you putting service and busyness first on your list of priorities in life, or are you putting time at the master's feet at the top of the list? Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? This was a lesson that I had to learn personally early on in my ministry, or I don't think I would have made it this far. In fact, it happened before I even began the pastorate. I was at Bible college. Second year in school, I've got uh, a list of things that's just crazy. I don't know what I was thinking, but when you're 20, you think you can do everything. So I had seven classes, full courses. I was playing soccer. I was on a ministry team. I'm doing all of these extracurricular activities. I'm in a unit. I'm leading a unit. And on top of it, I've got essays due. Two weeks away, I've got five major essays due. And i got to start hammering these things out. And I remember, I was at my desk. I've got a stack of books this tall on one side. I've got a stack of books this tall on the other side. And I get down at my desk, and I mark out on my syllabi which ones were of first importance, which ones I was pretty sure the prof would give me an extension on, and I'm kind of, you know, strategizing. And finally, I get down, and I'm ready to start on the first paper, and I'm just overwhelmed. I couldn't get out a word. I just felt dead on the inside. I got the Bible open in front of me because it was an exegetical. I got to dive in and get out the meat. And I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking to myself, what's the point of all of this? Why am I doing this? And I just had one of those moments of panic, like, what have I gotten myself into? And so I just did the thing that came most natural in that moment. I put my head down on the desk. (laughs) My Bible was open there, so I had my head on top of it. (laughs) And I started to pray and I just said, God, what am I doing here? Why do I feel so overwhelmed I'm doing this because I want to serve you, but I just feel like I'm dying on the inside. I feel dry. There's no life. What's the point of all of this? And in the stillness, I want to be careful what I say here, but there's times where in shorthand we'll say God spoke to me. I'm not saying in an audible way, but I I believe the Holy Spirit whispers to us from within. And in that moment, I'm going to say God spoke to me because I felt that inner whisper of the Holy Spirit. And it was as though the Lord said to me in that moment, Danny, you could stay in this room locked in for the rest of your life and not do another thing for me the rest of your days. You don't have to preach a sermon, write another paper. And just being with me in relationship That would be enough. That would be all that I ask of you, is to sit with me. Only me. I matter. None of this matters apart from me. Be with me, and the rest of it will fall into place. And something broke inside of me. I started to weep. I I felt this release of saying, yes, Lord. 
It's about you. You're of first importance. Everything else falls into place. And I started to hammer out that paper like I had new life in me. And I've never forgot that moment. I've, I've written it down on a piece of paper that day. I wrote only Jesus. And I read it every day that I would read a paper or start a new paper. I'd rem- remind myself, only Jesus. Relationship with him comes first. That's all that matters. Everything comes out of that. And that note is still sticking to the side of my filing cabinet in my office today. Every single sermon that I've ever prepared, I read those words before I begin. Only Jesus. Relationship comes first. Everything else comes second. And you know how many times that saved me. Because there's been times where I felt dry and ready to burn out. And he reminds me again, sit at my feet. Sit at my feet. Don't put it off. You need it now. You need it today. You need it this morning. You need it tonight. Never forget, relationship comes first. So how about you? Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? I believe that we as a church have by and large become dominated across the board by the Martha mentality. I believe that we have, we have been hijacked by it. I believe that our culture has had a large part to play in this. Busyness is, is placed above everything else. The, the more full your calendar is, the more successful you must be. So therefore, pack your lives as full as you possibly can. And we've embraced that as a church. And so we've become really good at frenetic activity. But we've become poor at intimacy. We've elevated service over relationship and religious activity over intimacy with our Father. And we have only to look around to see the consequences. Across Canada, the majority of churches are in decline. The majority. Thankfully, there are exceptions. But across the board, we've embraced this outward form of going through the motions, but inside we're dry, and we're seeing it. Churches are closing their doors. Just this past weekend, Leanne and I attended the closing of the college where I met Jesus in the first place in this personal way. Bethany College closed its doors, the very place that I learned about this important thing about sitting at his feet. And I wonder, what does this mean? What's happening in our nation? We have bought into our culture's lie that frenetic activity is the path to success and happiness, but God's word tells us the exact opposite. The path to eternal success and lasting happiness is found in a love relationship with the Son of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus and he says to them, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So far, this sounds like the perfect church, doesn't it? This is a church that I want to be a part of. But listen to what Jesus says next. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You're getting everything else right. But this one thing you've forgotten. Your first love of first importance. Do this one thing and everything else will fall into place. And so he says to them, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
Their deeds of service were great. Their work ethic was spot on. Their discernment was keen. Their perseverance was exemplary. And their doctrine has everything neatly in a row. But the love for their Savior, the great love that had forgiven their sins and made them children of God in the first place, was forgotten, abandoned. And as a result, they were drifting into a form of dry, dead religion. And if they didn't repent... Jesus said he was personally going to remove their candle. And I take that to mean none other that he personally would close their doors. This is something that was for them, but I believe this is something that's for us as well. The message for Ephesus is a message for Clarny today. We need to keep our first love on the top of the shelf. You know, I don't believe very often in coincidences, And I'll just share this little aside for you. This week, as I was preparing this message, I was up front here and I was just praying. And I look up to the display behind me. And the letters that you see on the top shelf that says God were lying on the floor. Family was still standing up there. Faith was still standing up there. But God was lying on the floor. Strange coincidence, odd happenstance. Probably a kid ran by after church last Sunday and knocked them off. But exactly what I was thinking about was what I saw. God had been knocked off the top shelf. Everything else was still standing, but he was lying on the floor. It was like God just said, yeah, this is the message. I have to come first. Everything else comes after. Are you sitting at my feet, Clarny Mennonite Church? Are you sitting at my feet first and doing everything else second? Or have we adopted the Martha mentality? We have to repent of this. That's what Jesus said. That's the antidote. We have to repent of our Martha-like mentalities and do whatever it takes to become a Mary and to know the joy of daily intimacy with Jesus Christ. In his book, Enjoying Intimacy with God, J. Oswald Sanders makes this piercing observation. He writes, we are at this moment as close to God as we choose to be. True, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy, but when it comes to the point, we are not prepared to pay the price involved. Are we prepared to pay the price involved? Are you ready to set aside the many things of your life to gain the one thing? If you were to make a list of all of the things in your life that you have to do, everything you're responsible for, and you put Jesus at the top of that list, I want you to imagine taking a big, a big marker and putting a, a line and crossing out everything else and having Jesus at the top. Because in comparison to him, Paul says everything else is rubbish. It's garbage. Jesus is at the top shelf. It has to be that way and no other way. If we put him down, we've missed it all. And so we need to put him first. And so let me just ask you, do you in your life have regular time set aside every day to just sit at Jesus' feet? What does that look like? Well, it can vary drastically, but let me get really practical for just one moment as we close. It always involves reading God's word and spending time in prayer. And not just praying, saying, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, but listening prayer, saying, Lord, speak to me. Impress on my heart. Whisper to me the things that you would have me hear. Point out sin in my life that I'm not aware of. Correct me, guide me, inspire me, empower me. These are the sorts of prayers that we need to be spending time in before the Father. And so for me, 
I always like to begin my time of devotion with a simple prayer. I just sit down and I ask the Holy Spirit to get rid of all of the cluttered thoughts I have, all of my responsibilities for the day. Just set those aside and help me to listen to him clearly. Then spend time in the Word. It can be a little bit, it can be a lot. But spend time in God's Word and pray. And let me tell you, if you haven't started doing this at least once a day, start simple. Start simple. Don't complicate it, but start. This is so important. It is essential. Morning Bible reading and devotional. We have daily breads, other material at the back of the church for you. If you have a smartphone, I think... I'm the last person in the world to get one of these, but I finally got one. If you have a smartphone, you know that there's these great apps you can get. I have the Bible in like 500 translations on here that's got devotionals sent to me on a, on a timer that I get one in the morning. I can get one sent to me right after lunch. So when I, when I finish lunch, I have another little pick-me-up in the middle of the day. There's all sorts of great resources at, literally at our fingertips where we can stay connected to God in His Word and have our thoughts and our spirits centered on Him 24 hours of the day. There are so many things. If you're doing some of these things, I'd encourage you to incorporate a midday time where you pause. Not just bookending your days to say, I'm going to start and end, but lunchtime, beginning of the day. Set aside time, five minutes, to just say, God, I'm going to recenter my thoughts on you. Get into journaling. Try different, different ways and means of connecting with God. Sitting at Jesus' feet, and you will discover... The wonderful intimacy and power that comes from spending time with the Master. Let me close with this quote from author Linda Boone. She writes this. As you soak in his presence and soak up his love for you, you will begin to know that you are truly and totally loved, maybe even for the first time in your life. This will change your life in so many ways. You will feel and experience his love and his rest and his peace daily. And this cannot help but affect every aspect of your life. My friends, I can tell you these words are true. Experience them for yourself. Taste and see what the Master has waiting for you. Sit at his feet today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for the lesson that you taught in just a few short words, that Martha, you are worried and anxious about many things. But only one thing is needed. And so, Lord, help us to remember this as we go into this day and into our weeks to do what it takes to focus on the one thing and have everything else sorted out behind it. Help us to put you first in all that we do and say. Bless this church. Give us Mary-like hearts to just sit at your feet and know that you are good. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.